to the jungle and you can suck on some dicks dicks what's up everybody welcome to the show um so uh joe biden is clobbering reporters in the face <laughs> uh you got agro biden is back for us amazing so we'll talk about that talk about the substance of it too um we have a potential breakthrough for a peace deal in russia and ukraine that is an important story it's an important story. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to what's going on in, in uh, Russia and Ukraine right now, but um, we'll discuss this. Anyway, uh, we have a shock poll about the Will Smith slap, the slap heard around the world, an amazing poll on that. Uh, we have John Stewart breathing fire about veterans and their lack of health care. We have YouTube deplatforming uh, a very prominent lefty in a horrendous move and then later on in the show if you stick around we got the war on furries from nebraska politicians that is hilarious and um when donald trump bragged about his hole in one that that was glorious so i'm going to read that to you we'll have some fun with it so anyway without further ado we got all that and much more let's go ahead and get started so when president biden announced his uh new budget the other day he uh he took some questions at the end of the press conference, and I believe there were six or seven questions. Six of the questions were about um, his recent comments about Putin and Russia, and one of them was about the budget. And I, I mean, you can go watch it yourself, but it sounded like he was asked the same question about four or five times. <laughs> and uh, you actually got a little bit of aggressive Biden here, man. You got 
Sleepy Joe uh, apparently took some Adderall or something, and he starts flailing and throwing some haymakers. So here he is, uh, flaming reporters. And I don't know if you can categorize this as a double down or a triple down, but it's, he's, um, he doesn't like the line of questioning, and he appears to have some pretty strong feelings on the speech he gave the other day where he said, uh, you know, my God, this guy can't remain in power talking about Vladimir Putin. So let's take a look and then I'll react. Do you believe what she says, that Putin can't remain in power? Or do you now regret saying that because your government has been trying to walk that back? These are words complicate matters. Well, yes, three different questions. I'll answer them all. Number one, I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the moral outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing with the actions of this man. Just, just brutality half the children in Ukraine. I just come from being with those families. And, uh, and so I, but I want to make it clear. I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing more outrage that I feel, and I make no policies for Personal feelings, sir. Your personal feelings? My, my personal feelings. Secondly, you asked me about, uh, well, what was the second Does part? it complicate the diplomacy of this moment? No, I don't think it does. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, the fact is that we're in a situation where, uh, um, what complicates the situation at the moment is the, uh, the escalatory efforts of Putin to uh, continue to engage in carnage, the kind of behavior that, uh, that makes the whole world say, my God, what is this man doing? That's what complicates things a great deal, and, uh, um, but I, I don't think it complicates it at all. Let me go to uh, Steve Hall, Reuters. Mr. President, thank you. When you say that, that you're not walking anything back, you do feel that Vladimir Putin should be remained from, removed from power? Is that what you're saying? No, but I was expressing, <coughs> that's what I said. I was expressing the moral outrage I felt towards this man. I wasn't articulating a policy change. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, if he continues on this course that he's on, he is going to become a pariah worldwide. And who knows what he come, becomes at home in terms of support. And just to follow, are you concerned this remark might escalate the conflict? No, I'm not. Not at all. So, saying he cannot remain in power does not mean that he I was expressing my outrage. He shouldn't remain in power. Just like, you know, bad people shouldn't continue to do bad things. But it doesn't mean we have a fundamental policy to do anything to take Putin down in any way. What made you add that? Because that wasn't in your prepared remarks we were told. So, what made you add that at the end, Mr. President? Because I was talking about, I was talking to the Russian people. The last part of the speech was talking to the Russian people, telling what we thought. I was communicating this to not only the Russian people, but the whole world. This is, this is just stating a simple fact, that this kind of behavior is totally unacceptable. Thank you very much. I know you're going to ask a really nice question. Well, it, it's an important question, I think. Are you worried that other leaders in the world are going to start to doubt that America is bad if some of these big things that you say on the world stage keep getting walked back? What's getting walked back? It, it sounds like just in the last couple days, uh, it sounded like you told U.S. troops they were going to Ukraine. It sounded like you said it was possible the U.S. would use a chemical weapon, and it sounded like you were calling for regime change in Russia, and we know... None of the three occurred. None of the three? None of the three. And you, and you interpret the language that way. I was talking to the troops. We were talking about helping train the troops in that are the, the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland. That's the context. I sat there with those guys for a couple hours. That's what we talked about. So when you said you're going to see when you're there, you were not attending. I was referring to with meeting with and talking with the uh, Ukrainian troops who were in Poland. And when you said a chemical weapon used by Russia would trigger a response in time. It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? You've got to be silly. Squirrels want to know? 
Well, I want to know a lot of things. I'm not telling them what the response would be. Yeah. Then Russia knows the response. All right, I'm going to take two more questions. One, two. Mr. President, thank you. Um, I still want to get back to your original words that you cannot remain in power. Can you help us understand you have more foreign policy experience than any president who has ever held this office? Whether those are your personal feelings or your feelings as president, do you understand why people would believe you as someone commanding one of the largest nuclear arsenals in the world, saying someone cannot remain in power is a statement of U.S. policy? And also, are you concerned about propaganda use of those remarks by the Russians? No and no. Tell me what. You have so much experience. You are the leader of this country. Because it's ridiculous. Nobody believes we're going to take down, I was, going to, I was talking about taking down Putin. Nobody believes that. Number one. Number two, what have I been talking about all since this all began? The only war that's worse than one intended is one that's unintended. The last thing I want to do is engage in a land war or a nuclear war with Russia. That's not part of it. I was expressing my outrage at the behavior of this man. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And it's more an aspiration than anything. He shouldn't be in power. There's no, I mean, people like this shouldn't be ruling countries, but they do. The fact they do, but doesn't mean I can't express my outrage about it. Wow. So that was interesting to watch. I do find the media amazing because every single moment up to this point, there's been endless pressure on Biden from the right where they're like, why aren't you being more hawkish? Why aren't you doing a no-fly zone? Why aren't you sending planes to Ukraine? Why aren't you giving Zelensky literally anything and everything that he wants? Which, of course, Zelensky, in his heart of hearts, would want the U.S. to be in the conflict and, and going after Russia because that would make it more likely that Ukraine would be able to stand. So every single question to this point has always been like from a neoconservative hawkish perspective. But now, uh, after Biden made that comment, all of a sudden everybody's, you know, pumping the brakes. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you talking about doing regime change in Russia? That's crazy. Now, <clears throat> that is crazy. That's insane. See, like, e- to even breach that topic is preposterous because the guy has nuclear weapons. Again, this isn't like talking about Afghanistan and Iraq, which were bad enough. They were wars of aggression on the part of the U.S., but they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Putin does. So he has an insurance policy to know that there is not going to be a direct conflict with the United States of America because the United States would have to have a suicide pact in order to do it. So it is insane. But when you listen to his explanation of... His, com- his comments from the other day there, it's interesting, and I, you know, I tend to believe, before I didn't know if it was written in the speech or not written in the speech, apparently now the White House is saying it definitely was not written in the speech, so it was Biden sort of shooting from the hip and saying it, and I tend to believe that. I tend to believe he was babbling out. He definitely, definitely shouldn't have said it, but what do you think about the way he's handling it here? Because let's, so let's go through some of the specifics of it. He says, I'm not walking anything back but it's not a change in policy. So in other words, he's saying, um, you guys are all interpreting this as now we have an official regime change policy in Russia, which, you know, the implication there is like we're going to send in SEAL Team 6 or do a ground invasion of Russia, which is insane, because again, that could instantly lead to nuclear war. He's saying there's no change in policy, but I'm not walking anything back. This is one of those like, I want to save face moments, but I can't keep it 100% real to save face. If you're keeping it 100% real, you could say, of course, that was interpreted as our policy is to do regime change in Russia. Uh, so I am walking that back. But, you know, it's the classic. It, he actually strikes me as very Trumpian in this, in this press conference. 
the part of that that I actually like is the aggression, but in terms of the substance of what he's saying, it's definitely lacking a little bit. He goes, um, or somebody asks, does it complicate diplomacy and does it escalate? And he says, no, it doesn't. Come on. Of course it does. Of course it does. And a question later on is, is this going to be used for propaganda purposes in Russia? The answer, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. They're already using it. You know, there was a story the other day, Putin moved to some underground bunker. They probably upped the nuclear threat level even more than it was before. You know, there's like a scale and they had moved it up one or two and now they're probably going to kick it up some more. So, of course, it's going to be used as a propaganda win. And, of course, Putin's going to spin it as like, look, the big bad West is uh, threatening to come after us and totally destroy us. Uh, he, they said, you told us troops were going to Ukraine. You said the U.S. will use chemical weapons. This is the, the Peter Ducey question that everybody's talking about. And Biden tries to slap that shit down real quick. Biden says, uh, when asked to give specifics, like he said, oh, we're going to have a significant response if they use chemical weapons. When asked for specifics, he, he, again, this is classic Trumpian. He's like, why would I tell you? Why would I tell you what it's going to be? You've got to be silly. Because if I tell you, then the Russians know. That reminds me of what Trump used to say about ISIS. Why would I broadcast the plan about how to take out ISIS? Because then ISIS is going to know, and then it won't work. So I have a very top-secret, incredible, next-level plan, and you guys are just going to have to wait and see. That, that is sort of like a, a Trumpian response. But in terms of, you know, did he say that the U.S. is sending troops to Ukraine, what, he, what Biden clarifies there is the official U.S. policy, which is apparently our troops are training Ukrainian troops in Poland, which, look, you could have an issue with that as a policy in and of itself. You could say, hey, man, that's like a pubes hair away from hot war with Russia, so maybe not a good idea to do it. But that is what's going on. It's not that we're deploying troops uh, to Ukraine to directly fight Russia. Again, that would be uh, sleepwalking into World War III. Um, and at the end, the end is probably the most interesting point, because Biden says, well, nobody believes I was talking about taking out Putin when I said this guy can't stay in power. That's what Biden says. Now, I, have to, I understand how people can interpret it like that, because he says this guy's got to go. Now, on the flip side, though, again, I do feel like people are being a little bit dense in acting like he's announcing an official U.S. policy change that's above and beyond what we're already doing. Because, again, Vladimir Putin has nuclear weapons. So there is no, like, even if the U.S. was fully committed to that idea in every sense of the term, it's just not possible to do it with a guy who has nuclear weapons. That's the whole reason why all a, a variety of different countries, including much smaller countries that are less powerful, why they want nuclear weapons. You know, North Korea's GDP is like 57 cents and a Pop-Tart, and they're not being toppled. And they're not being toppled because they could take out Seoul, South Korea, because they have conventional weaponry, but also because, you know, they have weapons of mass destruction. And so it, it's definitely an insurance policy against, you know, the U.S. taking you out. And so everybody knows that about Russia, that they have the insurance policy. They have that extra layer of protection. They know the U.S. can't just waltz in there and take them out like all the other countries that we've done that to. So on the other hand, I do think people are being a little bit dense when they act like, you know, no, this was definitely an official U.S. policy change towards Russia. Look, my guess is, based on everything I've seen, the way that um, the U.S. is approaching this and the way people are thinking about it is, 
Of course we can't send in SEAL Team 6 and take out Vladimir Putin. Of course, you know, you can't do a hot war with Russia. You could say we're escalating to that point, and the fog of war and miscommunication could get us there, which is abysmal, which is terrible. But in terms of at its highest aspiration, what is the U.S. doing? Well, we all know they're like we're trying to implode the economy via sanctions, which I condemn because I don't want regular Russians to get hurt. A lot of Russians are against what Putin is doing. You can't do collective punishment. I don't agree with that. But between that and the sanctions of the oligarchs and the sanctions of Putin and the military and and stuff like that, the real goal is, well, hopefully, cross your fingers, sit down and hope that there can be some movement behind the scenes, some pressure behind the scenes that forces Russia to withdraw from Ukraine and or some sort of pressure that topples Putin internally. Now, that, I think there's even legitimate criticism of that because, you know, we've seen this before, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in Libya with, with regime change and uh, whether it's what we attempted to do in Syria via al-Nusra, which is jihadist against Bashar al-Assad, the dictator. Like, what comes next oftentimes can be worse. In fact, most of the time you get some sort of regime change, it's worse. So I think there's legitimate criticism on that front also. But you have to be honest about the nature of what the U.S. is trying to do. We're only committed to regime change insofar as maybe there's a tiny chance, percentage chance that our sanctions will bring about some change in power. But, you know, I think it's also equally likely that they're just trying to put enough pressure there to force Putin to withdraw because he can't even sustain the cost of an invasion. You know, so... I think people are being a little dense when they act like this is an official policy change. Because, again, we know he has, nu- he has nuclear weapons. We, nobody could, you, it's impossible to topple him like that. You just can't go in there. You can't do a hot war. You can't send in SEAL Team 6. This is obvious. So from the beginning, it was very likely that Biden went off script and was just shooting from the hip. I still don't think Biden should have said it. It was still an idiotic thing to say because it, it proves that the U.S., is not interested in peace, first and foremost. If you're in the middle of peace negotiations, as Francis Macron says they are, well, then when you say your government is totally illegitimate, you shouldn't be in power anyway, well, then they're well within their rights to turn around and say, why would you even make a deal with me if I shouldn't even be in power? You're not a partner in peace. Your ultimate goal is getting rid of me. So why should I even talk to you? So it was a dumb thing to say. It was a stupid thing to say. It was counterproductive. It gives them a propaganda win. But in terms of I can see why people would think he's announcing an official U.S. policy change, but deep down, everybody knows, if you think about it for three seconds, it's not possible to just have that goal flat out, period, because that's World War III and homeboy has nukes, and so you can't explicitly, like, we're going to take him out. At its highest aspiration, it's like, like, like he said, it's like crossing your fingers and bad guys do bad things, so I hope the bad guy stops doing bad things and is squeezed out of power, something along those lines. But anyway... So the part of this that I like is that he's aggressive and he's slapping down the reporters. The part, of, the part of this that I dislike is he is doing a lot of sophistry there. He is, you know, when he says, I'm not walking anything back, but it's not a change in policy. It would be more honest to be like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, and, but I'm, I'm not. I, we never change the policy. That would be more honest. That would be more forthright. But anyway, I'll leave it to you guys. What do you guys think about this back and forth? What do you guys think about uh, his line of argument here? Um, and uh, to the media front, what I'll say is this, for the love of God, I would love to see the aggressive questioning more in this vein than in the vein of what they've done previously. 
where everything is from a neocon perspective. Everything is like, why can't you be more hawkish? Why can't you start World War III? Why can't you do a no-fly zone? Why can't you give Zelensky everything he wants? Why can't Ukraine get fighter jets from Poland that take off from Poland and attack Russia, which, again, is World War III? I would much rather see this kind of an aggressive media, a media that's like, hey, let's be clear here. You don't want to say you're for regime change, right? Because at least that's from a more de-escalatory perspective. So anyway, there you have it. You guys let me know what you think. All right, next. So we do have some positive news, potential positive news coming out of uh, Russia or coming out of Ukraine. Um, Now, again, every caveat in the world, massive grain of salt, because what people say versus what they do is different, especially when you're talking about war. You got propaganda, propaganda everywhere. That's obvious at this late date. But now having said that, let's take a look at what the breakthrough is. So the AP says, Russia's military announced Tuesday it will, quote, fundamentally scale back operations near Ukraine's capital and a northern city as talks brought the outlines of a possible deal to end the grinding war into view. Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Fomin said the move was meant to increase trust in the talks after several rounds of negotiations failed to halt what has devolved into a bloody campaign of attrition. The announcement was met with skepticism from the U.S. and others. While Russia portrayed it as a goodwill gesture, it comes as the Kremlin troops uh, have become bogged down in the face of stiff Ukrainian resistance that has thwarted President Vladimir Putin's hopes for a quick military victory. Late last week, and again on Tuesday, Russia seemed to roll back its war aims, saying its, quote, main goal now is gaining control of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken said he had not seen anything indicating talks were progressing in a constructive way, and he suggested Russian uh, indications of a pullback could be an, uh, an attempt by Moscow to deceive people and deflect attention. So, all right, let's go through this. To the idea that there's no evidence of the talks progressing in a positive way, that is definitely not true because we have two huge concessions or even arguably three huge concessions from Zelensky. They're now official. They're public. He even went to Russian media to let everybody know these are the concessions that we're making. And beyond that, uh, negotiations are happening in Turkey right now, and Erdogan is using the, the government office or government building or room that is known for like very high level um, government work. So, and that, there were a couple of articles written about that, how they never break out this room. They never use this room unless you really have some important stuff going on. So there does appear to be some, some positive movement. Now, where that ultimately will end up, I don't know. And that's just speculation on my part. So let's go through the potential uh, reasons why Putin might be doing this. The first thing that you can bring up is it might not even be true. It might be like, remember when they sort of fake withdrew from the border and attacked the U.S., you said the invasion was going to be Wednesday. We're not doing it on Wednesday. We proved that you were liars immediately. And he was like, we're drawing down now from the border. And then within the week, he invaded. So it could be a situation like that. He's just saying it, but he's not going to do it. That's one possibility. Another possibility is those supply lines in the north have to come through Belarus. Maybe there's an issue, a problem with those supply lines where they don't feel like they can continue to use those supply lines. They're not effective supply lines. Um, they're, it's costing more than it's worth. There's not enough movement in the right direction. Uh, that's another possibility. Another possibility is he's just losing. Like he's losing too much in that area 
And so he's like, we're not going to take Kiev. We're not going to take – there's one other city as well in the north that they're uh, allegedly moving back from. And he feels like he's portraying it as, I am choosing of my own volition to withdraw, when the reality is his ass was beat back. That all these, there's all these different possibilities as to why this is happening. Another potential thing is maybe it is true that he's doing it, and the reason he's doing it is because now there were enough concessions from Zelensky where he feels like, I'll take that minor win and get out of here. Now, I think originally, based on the way the invasion went, it looks to me like Putin genuinely wanted to take the entire country, which is why he invaded the entire country. He didn't just go into the eastern Donbass region. Um, I mean, he invaded near the capital, too, which is west of the river. So it looked to me like he wanted the whole thing. Um, but it is possible that now he realizes this is going on way longer than he thought. He thought he'd waltz in and take it and be welcomed as a liberator, just like the U.S. thought in Iraq. And he's like, okay, well, now I'll take my small, small win and get out of here. So what did Zelensky say? Well, we covered this the other day. Zelensky, a number of major concessions, a number of major concessions. So the first one, which he even sort of gave before the invasion, was, all right, we'll be a neutral country. Before the invasion, he said, look, us joining NATO is a dream. Basically, they don't want us, so we're not going to be part of it. He said that before the invasion and Putin still invaded. And then he also said recently, no, for real, we're not going to be part of NATO. And then he just again comes out and says, we will be a neutral country. We will not align with the West. So, hey, I'm letting you win on what you say is your most major point. But now he, he sweetened the pot a little bit. And his sweetening of the pot was, let's have a conversation about the areas that Russia currently has control over. So what are the areas that Russia has control over? Well, they've had control of Crimea since 2014. So that's one area where he's like, maybe we negotiate, maybe I let go of Crimea. I don't know the specifics of what they're talking about in the negotiation. Are they saying Crimea's got to be its own independent thing and the Donbass region has to be its own independent thing or two independent republics, like they say? Um, I don't know, but in, he now appears to be open, Zelensky appears to be open to saying either the eastern portion of Ukraine – uh, the separatist regions, either they can be independent states or Russia, you can have them. Same thing with Crimea. So if he's giving away, like, the eastern portion of Ukraine and Crimea, and he's saying we're going to be a neutral state, I mean, those are, on paper, those are some of the biggest things that Vladimir Putin has asked for. The biggest things. So are you going to take that win and, and run based on how the war's going, Vlad, or are you not? Now, again, I think it's complicated because... I think it's taken longer than Vladimir Putin thought, but I also think he wants all of Ukraine, or he wanted all of Ukraine. Now, that shit may, maybe has sailed because there's a fierce resistance going on, but I told you guys from the beginning after I learned about it that uh, there's a tremendous amount of natural gas, not just off the coast of Crimea, but in eastern Ukraine and in western Ukraine. Part of Vladimir Putin's uh, ambitions here are, well, I'm a petrostate. I want that natural gas, and also just Russian imperial ambitions. That, and he follows a bunch of you know, ultra-nationalist Russian philosophers who talk about the Russian Empire in glowing terms and talk about how really that they're part of us. Like Ukraine is not its own separate thing. He thinks it's a totally fake state. And so, but either way, um, this is, these are good signs. These are good signs. Now, again, will anything come of it? Um, is it actually happening if they're withdrawing? I can't answer those questions yet. I can't. But I don't like the U.S.'s uh, posture here where, they're sort of aggressively being like, no, this isn't real, and he doesn't mean it. And the other thing I'm afraid of is if some sort of deal is reached between Zelensky and Putin, is the West going to just throw a wrench into it and say, like, no, we're not in favor of that. We don't agree with that. 
if that were to happen, I would be furious. Because if they reach the deal and they're the ones who are fighting, I mean, for the U.S. to veto it and say, no, now you've got to keep fighting and keep losing, you know, people who, uh, Ukrainian civilians and keep losing Ukrainian soldiers and keep creating tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions more refugees because we don't like the terms of the deal, that would piss me off. But uh, at least as of now, the reporting is potentially you have some movement in the right direction. But I'm always, I was even questioning whether or not to cover this story because this could just, it could all be bullshit. You know, we don't know. And you're not going to hear that in a lot of other places, but you'll hear it here that, you know, my degree of confidence when talking about anything on the ground in the context of a war is not very high because in the war, it's, like I said, you've got propaganda coming from a thousand different directions. Now, at the same time, I should mention, there's a bunch of other questionable things going on. So you had, now there was some, some firing of weapons into Russia from the Ukrainian side. Oh, boy. And so you, you always worry, like, if indeed this stuff about we're getting somewhere with the peace negotiations is real, well, something like that, all of a sudden, you know, um, swing the pendulum and make everybody less in favor of peace again. I don't know. But, again, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not on the ground uh, during the war. But at the same time you have nominal de-escalation, there's also a bunch of different stories of escalation. So we shall see. But let's hope it's real. Let's hope they're working on some sort of peace deal. And let's hope that the nature of any peace deal will actually lead to peace and won't effectively be appeasement where, you know, he's really not satisfied and he's going to keep going anyway. Because there are historical examples of both. You know, you could point to instances where, a peace was made and a peace held. And you can point to examples of a peace was made and then the peace was immediately breached because somebody was unappeasable. But there you have it. We'll see what happens moving forward. All right, guys, so I have a shocking poll to share with you about the slap heard around the world. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock in the face after a joke about Will's wife, Jada. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Now, this is from a Democratic pollster, Blue Rose or something like that. And, um, yeah, I'll tell you why in a second you take this with a grain of salt. Okay, so here we go. Overall, which side was more wrong? 52%, according to this poll, says Chris Rock. 47.7% say Will Smith. So a majority of people, according to this poll, say Chris Rock's joke was worse than Will Will Smith's hit. That's kind of crazy. So now the the age difference is interesting, too. 18 to 34, more side with Chris Rock than Will Smith. What? What? Um, And then you can see it's basically a sliding scale there. 65 plus, you have 48% side with Chris Rock and 51% or 51.8% side with Will Smith. So it flips. And then also, look, there's an income difference. This is fascinating. So under $25,000 a year, over 60% side with, uh, with, or excuse me, over 63% say Chris Rock was more wrong and Will Smith was more right. And then obviously the higher the income level goes, you have, um, it flips. It flips. Now, I will say the way, and then you can see there's also a a difference in terms of uh, education level. But I will say the the reason why I'm skeptical of this poll is because I'm about to show you another poll which has opposite results. 
But also, the way they phrase that is weird to me. Which side was more wrong, Chris Rock or Will Smith? That seems weird to me because somebody could not really grasp the question up front and just think, like, which team are you on, Chris Rock or Will Smith? And then when you answer Chris Rock to a question of, is he more wrong, but in your mind you heard, like, which team are you on, well, then you could have flipped the results. So anyway, the reason why I'm skeptical of this, and let me go ahead and throw up that next graphic for you because I think this more reflects the reality, but I'll ask you guys what you think. So here's a poll from YouGov on the same day that it happened. About three in five Americans say Will Smith was wrong to hit Chris Rock after his joke at the Academy Awards. So when you ask the question like this, on stage at the Academy Awards, comedian Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's shaved head, shaved head, which is due to a hair loss condition called alopecia. Her husband, Will Smith, responded by walking on stage and hitting Chris Rock. Were Smith's actions right or wrong? When you ask the question like that, which I think is a much more straightforward way of asking the question, you have 61% of U.S. adults say it was wrong. Only 21% say it was right. And then you can see the breakdown. 64% of men say it was wrong. 57% of women say it was wrong. Every demographic, it's either a majority or a plurality that say it was wrong. It was wrong. So I'll ask you guys. Again, my theory on it is the way they phrased the question in that first poll, which showed more people side with Will Smith, the way they phrased it was weird. So people could have been confused and given an answer where they thought they were saying Will Smith was wrong, but they were actually saying Chris Rock was wrong. Um, but there's another piece of evidence that I need to share with you guys. So, again, this is a YouGov poll. The other one was like a Blue Rose research poll or something like that. Uh, very, very different results. I will say that there was a, a Twitter poll from somebody who I follow, Owen Higgins. Uh, he's a reporter. And now, of course, Twitter polls are not scientific, so, you know, massive caveat, massive grain of salt. But when he polled it, it was almost – 50-50 on the dot. It's almost exactly 50-50. So what do you think the actual sentiment is out there is my question for you guys. Is the YouGov poll more correct? Where a pretty strong majority say Will Smith was wrong and he shouldn't have done it? Is the other poll correct? Where a small majority says actually Chris Rock was more wrong? Or is that unscientific poll more reflective of the reality of the sentiment in the country where it's, 50-50 uh, overall. My guess, my guess is um, on Twitter, the sentiment actually is 50-50, or at least within the circles I run in and perhaps you run in. But in terms of the population, I think the wording of the first poll was weird and it kind of confused people. And some people gave an answer that they thought was the opposite of what they gave. And I think that the YouGov poll is more accurate. Because again, you heard the way they phrased the question there was much more specific and much more clear. And that's more important. That's more clear. And in that poll, it was 61% were like, of course, Will Smith shouldn't have done that. And then one of the things I always like to do, this is totally anecdotal, but one of the things I like to do is get a nice little normie sense from my mom. And I ate uh, dinner with my mom last night. And I was asking her, well, what do you, you know, what do you think about it? And in snap, instant reaction of like, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, Jada is a beautiful woman. Who cares if Chris Rock made fun of her hair? Alopecia or no alopecia? Obviously, Will Smith was wrong. So, and it was a snap. It was a very snap answer. Sometimes she throws me some curveballs my mom does. I'm like, really? You believe that? But this one, I was like, yeah. Like, I, yeah, you know, I'm with her. So, anyway, I'll leave it up to you guys. What do you think the actual breakdown was or is in the country? 
Not on Twitter, where I think it genuinely is 50-50, but in the country. My guess is that YouGov poll is more accurate, and it's probably 61% are um, against Will Smith. But it is kind of amazing that even if they did mess up the phrasing and confuse people a little bit, it is kind of crazy that any poll shows, yeah, hitting somebody because of a mean joke. Rock on. Okay. Next. So one of the things John Stewart has always cared deeply about is veterans' health care. He has crusaded to get them health care. Um, the first responders during 9-11, they were breathing in these toxic fumes and this dust when the towers collapsed, and it destroyed a lot of people, man. Years later, boom, they got hit with severe respiratory illnesses and emphysema and cancer and the U.S. government was dragging its feet in terms of getting these people health care. A lot of people didn't have adequate health care. And so John Stewart went and fought for them to have their health care bills paid. And um, it was like pulling teeth. And, you know, that was something that John Stewart was already a brilliant guy, but it was something that really opened his eyes even more to, oh, shit, what's going on? This is crazy. Um, so now he's fighting for veterans health care again because the U.S. government is dragging its feet again. And he gave a speech here in D.C., and he breathed fire. Take a look. So this is sort of simple. I mean, you see the entire veterans community standing together, united as one, to get this done. And it's going to come down to what it always comes down to here. We need 10 Republicans. That's it. After 20 years of fighting, this is what it comes down to. 10 Republicans. We get that, and the veterans finally get the health care and the benefits that they fought so hard for that they earned, that they're sick and dying for. We've got them. We wanted, we wanted Kate Hendricks to be here today. She came and testified just, just three, four weeks ago, but she can't be here today because she's in a hospice. That's what this is about. We can't wait any longer. This delay is unconscionable, and you're going to have a hearing today, and you're going to hear a lot of nonsense about, is this responsible? We're all going to say the same thing. We want to do it. We want to support the veterans, but we want to do it the right way. We want to be responsible. You know what would have been nice? If they had been responsible 20 years ago and hadn't spent trillions of dollars on overseas adventures, if they had been responsible and had to spend billions of dollars for defense contractors to poison our own troops. If they had been responsible and understood that 20 years of war was going to create an overflow and an influx of sick veterans paying the consequences of those wars, they had their chance to be responsible, and they blew it. This is one of those issues that it's so important that he's doing this, and it's so great that he's doing this, for this simple reason. Among the actual public, there is no partisan divide on this question. You ask average Joes and Janes all around this country, regardless of their political persuasion, they lean left, they lean right, they're independent, they're centrist, whatever. Everybody's going to say, should we give first responders and veterans health care? Are you kidding me? Of course we should. And in fact... Majority of people in the country go further than that, and 60, 70% say we should have universal health care. So 
there's not much of a divide in the country, and I would reckon that it's even higher than 60 or 70% on this specific question. If you gave people the information, you'd probably be 80, 90% of people are like, what are, what are we talking about? What are we debating? You know, people sacrifice their bodies for the rest of us, and we're going to let them go bankrupt from medical bills or, or have it so they just don't even get treatment? Like, what are we talking about here? So since there's no partisan divide in the country, what John Stewart is doing is letting everybody know in D.C., well, actually, here there is a partisan divide. And here the Democrats are on the side of getting these people health care, and the Republicans are blocking it. So it's shining a light on an issue that is uniting among the public, but divisive among the cretinous demons in Washington, D.C. And that's phenomenally important. And hopefully people start putting pressure on these politicians, because that is what happened the last few times he went through this. The last year, because they have sunset provisions on the, the programs, and so he had to go and fight for it, and he got it, but then he had to go back and fight for it again. And um, it's the pressure that is put on as a result of his appearances and blowing it up to the world that ends up working. John Stewart, I don't know if you guys remember this, but John Stewart at the time, he went on Fox News as well to argue for health care for the first responders and the veterans. He went on Fox News to do it, and he had support from other Fox News hosts. So even among our decrepit, disgusting corporate media, it was an issue that was so overwhelming that they were like, all right, well, we're with you on this. And so the only divide was in Washington. There was enough pressure where he succeeded on that front. And now he's got to fight for it again, obviously. So, I mean, sounding, and I'm sure he feels this way too, that this even needs to be done. And that is such a great example of just how broken and corrupt the government is. Because, And you guys know this better than anybody else if you watch this show for any length of time. All they do in D.C. is represent their corporate donors. That's who they view as their boss, first and foremost. So if that's your boss, first and foremost, you know, every bill you're passing, everything you're talking about is going to be like, let's give a subsidy to this corporation or a tax cut to this billionaire. You know, let's deregulate industry more and cut the red tape and make sure that these companies can pollute in a way that protects their bottom line more. Like, these, these are the, this is the bulk of the debate that goes on there. With war, it's like, let's give more no-bid contracts to so-called defense contractors so they get really fucking wealthy off death and despair. So that's what they're focusing on all the time. It's like, there's no need to wonder why Congress always has an approval rating that's like 18%. There's no need to wonder because it's, uh, the entire system is broken. And in a weird way, it's not even about the individuals there. It's more about the system. If you reform the system, if you get the, the corporate money and the big money out of the system, then you're much more likely to have an open, honest uh, discourse and dialogue there where people are arguing for their own political philosophy and ideology and different policies. And it's not just about Who's the biggest sellout who represents industry better and ignores the will of the people more? So anyway, there you have it. Massive credit to Jon Stewart. Shame on any politician, and it's overwhelmingly Republican, who are not in favor of getting first responders and veterans their adequate health care. I mean, what more can you say about it, man? What more can you say about it? Uh, And does Jon Stewart, we covered the story recently, does Jon Stewart have political aspirations? 
because it sort of looks like Jon Stewart might have political aspirations, and he almost admitted that in a recent interview. He's like, well, how can you not think about running for office when you see these morons who are in there now? That's basically what he said. I don't know. I'm agnostic on the question, but Crystal had an interesting take on it, which is, well, look, he retired from doing his show, but now he came back to do a show. Well, why would he do that? Well, her theory is that that could be a springboard to get back in the public consciousness to then use that to launch some sort of run for office. It's possible. I don't know. But, I mean, it goes without saying, him in any position of power would be much better than what we have now. Let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. So YouTube and, you know, a bunch of other social media outlets have gone to purge city because of the war in Ukraine. Um, You know, all the Russian state-affiliated media is being axed. And uh, they used to have like a, almost like a warning symbol with it. Not a warning symbol, but like just a little explainer that says, you know, this account is part of Russian state media or whatever, Chinese state media or whatever. Well, they're really going above and beyond now as a result of the war in Ukraine. And YouTube just axed and deplatformed Chris Hedges' show. Chris Hedges' show. Now, Chris Hedges was, uh, he did work for RT America. And RT America, I believe, is also just totally shutting down. But what Chris says is YouTube pulled the entire archive of the show. So... Let me read you from his piece here, and then I'm going to give you what I think is the most relevant, which shows how whatever they say it's about, it's never just about that. It always goes above and beyond. It's like back in the day uh, when we were at the beginning of the war on terror, where they were like, look, we need the Patriot Act because we need to make sure terrorists don't attack us. And then obviously the Patriot Act was not just used for that. The Patriot Act was used for collecting everybody's metadata, spying on everybody. You know, you had, and Edward Snowden leaked all this information. We learned that the NSA was spying on their love interests and they're using it to go after, you know, crimes that are not at all related to, to terrorism. And so it's expansive. It's expansive. The power, the, you get this overclass that gets to really micromanage everybody else. And that is the opposite of freedom. So let me show you what Chris Hedges says here. He writes in the Shear Post. The entire archive of On Contact, the the Emmy-nominated show I hosted for six years for RT America and RT International, has been disappeared from YouTube. Gone is the interview with Nathaniel Philbrick on his book about George Washington. Gone is the discussion of Kai Bird on his biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Gone is my exploration with Professor Sam Sloat from Trinity College, Dublin, of James Joyce's Ulysses. Gone is the show with Benjamin Moser on his biography of Susan Sontag. Gone is the show with Stephen Kinzer on his book on John... Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. Gone are the interviews with the social critics Cornell West, Tariq Ali, Noam Chomsky, Gerald Horn, Wendy Brown, Paul Street, Gabriel Rockwell, Naomi Wolf, and Slavo Zizek. Gone are the interviews with the novelists uh, Russell Banks and Salar Abdo. Gone is the interview with Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge, on the case of Leonard Peltier. Gone are the interviews with economists David Harvey and Richard Wolf. Gone are the interviews with the combat veterans and West Point graduates Danny Surgeon and Eric Edstrom about our wars in the Middle East. Gone are the discussions with the journalist Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi. Gone are the voices of those who are being persecuted and marginalized, including the human rights attorney Stephen Donziger 
and the political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal. None of the shows I did on mass incarceration where I interviewed those released from our prisons are any longer on YouTube. Gone are the shows with cartoonists uh, Joe Sacco and Dwayne Booth melted into thin air, leaving not a rack behind. All right, let me continue here. He says, what were my sins? I did not, like my former employer, the New York Times, sell you the lie of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, peddle conspiracy theories about Donald Trump being a Russian asset, put out a 10-part podcast called The Caliphate that was a hoax, or tell you that the information on Hunter Biden's laptop was, quote, disinformation. I did not prophesize that Joe Biden was the next FDR or that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. This censorship is about supporting what, as I.F. Stone reminded us, governments always do, lie. Challenge the official lie, as I often did and you will soon become a non-person on digital media. Julian Assange and Edward Snowden exposed the truth about the criminal inner workings of power. Look where they are now. This censorship is one step removed from Joseph Stalin's airbrushing of non-persons such as Leon Trotsky out of official photographs. It is a destruction of our collective memory. It removes those moments in the media when we attempted to examine our reality in ways the ruling class did not appreciate. The goal is to foster historical amnesia. If we don't know what happened in the past, we cannot make sense of the present. Okay. So now one thing people might think is, well, hold on now. He worked for RT. So was he doing the official, you know, state propaganda line of, of Russia when it comes to the war in Ukraine? Uh, and we have a definitive answer on that front. It is no. He denounced the Ukraine war as, quote, a criminal war of aggression criminal war of aggression. So he's against Russian aggression, and he has a whole archive of shows on every important issue under the sun. You know, mass incarceration. Uh, I'm sure he did a lot of stuff. Talk to Richard Wolf, so I'm sure he did a lot of stuff on economics and universal health care and the ways in which we lag behind even the mild social democratic Scandinavian countries. Uh, he obviously is a huge critic of US, the U.S. empire and our imperialism and our wars in the Middle East and the torture of the Bush administration. This is a guy who is a, a fierce opponent of the Democratic and Republican parties. You know, he's always been a, a staunch advocate for third parties and he, you know, gives people alternatives and wants to build out some so, sort of an alternative. He's a huge supporter of workers in the union movement. To ban somebody like Chris Hedges, to ban somebody like Lee Camp, to ban somebody like Abby Martin, who's already been banned, by the way. I mean, it is, it's just the clearest example I've ever seen of the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time, and we're going down that slope at about 100 miles an hour. Because these are people, again, Abby Martin, a lot of people don't know this, but when we talked about Abby Martin being banned, I showed you guys the evidence of it. I remember because I saw it at the time. Abby criticized the Russian invasion of Crimea. She was on the air during that, and she criticized the Russian invasion of Crimea. And then the Russian government responded and said something like, we're going to send Abby to Crimea. And she was like, bitch, I'm not going to Crimea. So these are people who are truth tellers. These are people who sometimes take unpopular positions among their own audience and among the people who nominally run the platform that they're on. What more do you want from somebody? What more do you want from somebody? So it's just, again, it's just collective punishment. I don't know. You were on RT America. You're gone. You're gone. It is possible to be on an otherwise shitty platform and do a good job. The details of the specifics 
of what you're saying matter massively. And I'm not even saying that if you, they did a terrible job that they should be pulled down, because I don't believe that either. I think even if it's the rankest of rank propaganda and it's flat-out apologetics for dictators and invasions or whatever, I mean, welcome to Fox News. <laughs> should Fox News be banned? Because they do Republican Party propaganda, and the Republican Party, by and large, bloodthirsty neocons like John Bolton. They have John Bolton on all the time. This guy's a fucking literal war criminal. Bad it because he's got blood on his hands. I, I don't say that about John Bolton. I say rebut him. Argue against him. And by the way, he makes it the easiest thing in the world because he's the dumbest person on the planet. So there, there is no consistent standard, and that's the main point. Is like, and he brings this up in his article, which is why I read you that part. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We're talking about disinformation and misinformation, and n- nobody's acknowledging the fact that oftentimes it's the mainstream media outlets in the U.S. that are peddling that misinformation and disinformation. I mean, do you remember when, like, Brian Williams was orgasming over the fact that we were launching missiles at Syria? You guys remember that? You guys remember when Donald Trump was, people said about him, I think it was Fareed Zakaria, maybe somebody else, who was like, this is the first time Donald Trump became president. Because he was launching missiles at Syria, they were cheering on an illegal and offensive attack. And he gave you a thousand other examples, too. Russia gets a great example. Look at what happened with the Cuomos on CNN. You had Chris Cuomo playing patty cakes with his brother on air and talking about how he's the best governor in the country and joking around. At the same time, Chris, uh, Andrew Cuomo was making decisions that killed grandma in New York, letting COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes, hiding the death count for COVID, mired in corruption scandals, which never got a peep on CNN. Should they get pulled down? Should they get pulled down? Being rank propaganda. Look, the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of objectively shitty stuff happening on every platform, and there's a lot of decent stuff happening on every platform. Not a lot on certain platforms. Some platforms are way worse than others, right? But you can't ban it. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. And by the way, don't get it twisted. In this war, Russia's even gone above and beyond the banning you know, the, that the West is doing. Because they, they, they fucking act like Facebook and Instagram, and they ban every independent media outlet. They have, like, fake news laws where if you basically if you're giving the Ukrainian perspective, they, they'll lock you up. So this is not, the argument I'm making is not like, U.S. bad, Russia good. No, the argument I'm making is we need to, as a matter of principle, we have to be against these sorts of purges and deplatforming and censoring. Now, look, maybe it was a, a decision because of just a broad policy of YouTube, we got to get rid of all of RT America. But I don't agree with that. That's a terrible fucking idea. And the thing that hurts the most about this is it's these interviews oftentimes have staying power. They're going to be just as relevant in five years and 10 years and 20 years as they are right now. Talking to books, authors, you know, talking to books, authors. <laughs> He's talking to books on air, like literal books. He just puts them down and talks to them. No. He talks to authors who've written interesting things, and that's just as relevant and just as timely in 20 years as it is right now. But the stuff with staying power has to go also, because you're, it's guilt by association. You're affiliated with this outlet. This outlet's bad because it's affiliated with the guy who's doing the war. Again, when the U.S. invaded Iraq illegally, I don't think it would have been fair for every other country on earth to ban every U.S. outlet, regardless if they're doing a shitty job or not, and they were doing a shitty job. And there's a lot of propaganda and bullshit on RT. There is, absolutely. But you know what? There was also Chris Hedges who did a great job. There's also Abby Martin who did a great job. Um, Lee Camp, Jesse, Jesse Ventura had a show that was great. Um, 
Ed Schultz used to have a show that was great. Tom Hartman used to have a show that was great. There's a lot of decent, good people, man. Now, do I agree with them on everything? No, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. So anyway, they're, it's gonna, they're coming for everybody. That's obvious. You know, I've told you guys, on a much smaller level, I've, I've dealt with similar things. You guys know that when I covered Trump going on the Full Send podcast, and I didn't even cover the part where he did the rigged election conspiracies. But they pulled down the Full Send podcast because of that, that conspiracy. Mine didn't even show that part of it. And they pulled down my video on it, which, by the way, almost had 100,000 views. And they were like, yeah, no, we've decided this is axed. We're not going to give people the choice to determine to watch it on their own or not. Gone. The Joe Rogan thing where I was, uh, one of my appearances on Joe Rogan, Joe was quoting Kanye West and said N-I-G-G-A. So now the whole podcast had to go on Spotify. Gone. Um, the, my Twitter thing where I... I made a joke and then put that exploding head gif, and they said, you're basically glorifying violence and torture, and this is, you're taking sadistic pleasure in this, and they locked my account over it. Do you, do you not see how where we're at now is actually worse than where we were when it was totally unregulated, wild, wild west, live and let live, people say whatever you want? That still had problems. That still had downsides. And there needs to be some sort of, reasonable curation in the sense that if somebody's actually committing a crime, you've got to go after them. Somebody doing targeted harassment, you know, doxing, direct threats of violence, those things are illegal. So not only are they ban-worthy, they're prosecutable. But do you not see how it was even better when it was totally unregulated Wild Wild West versus now, where if you fart, they want to ban you? Like, that's what we're looking at. I'm being hyperbolic, but you get the point. Chris Hedges is a public intellectual. He's a brilliant guy. And now he's got to go. I hope YouTube reverses this decision. I will not hold my breath on that front. Um, there was also, uh, I know Vosh had been banned from Twitch for saying the C word, C-R-A-C-K-E-R. YouTube allows you to say it. I'm just walking on eggshells here. Uh, and then now Destiny was recently banned from Twitch as well. I don't know why he was banned. It appears to they're not very transparent with their terms of service and like why they're taking a specific action. So he was banned as well. I mean, just it's, everybody's too ban happy and too deplatform happy, too censor happy. You know, uh, I don't like where we're at, man. We had Chris Hedges on Crystal Kyle and Friends. I thought he was a brilliant guy. We don't agree on everything. In fact, we debated certain things, but to take him down is absolutely ludicrous. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, um, AOC's warning to Democrats. And then after that, I got Biden's military budget proposal. Stay right there, y'all.
We are back, bitch. All right. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke to New York Magazine, and um, she took some shots at Democratic leadership. Let's take a look. This is the headline here. AOC's warning for Democrats. We're in trouble. Let me show you some of the article. Oh, hold on. My bad. I fucked up uh, the order here. Give me one sec. And... Boom. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thinks President Biden got played by Senator Joe Manchin. She doesn't think that. It's a fact. And uh, that the president's nostalgia for a bygone era of backroom dealmaking could prove disastrous for Democrats in the midterms. Again, a fact. Sitting in her campaign office, she says this matter-of-factly, she's correct, as if bucking the explicit orders of her party's leaders, up to and including the president of the United States, is not that big of a deal. But it is. Quote, as a younger member of Congress, the first vote I ever cast was for Barack Obama, who was called a socialist, and all of this stuff, all of this rhetoric that we see today has been the political reality of my entire life. And so I never felt nostalgia for something that never really existed in my lifetime, she told me. Quote, I feel like our politics has fundamentally changed, whether it's for the better or for worse is for people's determination, but I was never under the illusion that we can bring Manchin along. Ocasio-Cortez was one of only six Democrats, including Representative Jamal Bowman of the Bronx, to vote against Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill last November. She reasoned, correctly it turned out, that, several, that severing the infrastructure spending from Biden's much larger Build Back Better proposal would allow the bigger bill to be killed in the closely divided Senate by the defecation, <laughs> defecation, the defection <laughs> of two conservative Democratic senators, Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Um, that is the first time any major publication has acknowledged that the progressives were right on that to withhold their votes and try to keep them together. I have the utmost respect and confidence in the president. Wrong. But I just felt like we called two different plays on this one, Ocasio-Cortez said. I think that there is a sense among more senior members of Congress who have been around in different political times that we can get back to this time of buddy-buddy and backslapping and we'll cut a deal and go into a room with some bourbon and some smoke and you'll come out you'll come out and work something out. I think there's a real nostalgia and belief that that time still exists or that we can get back to that. But those days, she says, have been over for a long time. And the fact that Biden and others don't realize it, she says, could spell disaster in the fall's elections. With Biden's low approval numbers and the historic tendency of the president's party to lose, on average, 26 House seats in the midterms, the Democrats face an uphill battle to keep control of Congress, a situation that requires firing up the party's progressive base, Ocasio-Cortez said. Quote, We need to acknowledge that this isn't just about middle of the road, an increasingly narrow band of independent voters. This is really about the collapse of support among young people, among the Democratic base, who are feeling that they worked overtime to get this president elected and aren't necessarily being seen, she said. Ocasio-Cortez and the other 97 members of the House Progressive Caucus are calling on Biden to issue executive orders to enact environmental protections, lower health care costs, cancel federal student loan debts, and expand protection for immigrants. So the thing that she's calling for here is absolutely at this point, the only Hail Mary pass that Democrats have to not get shellacked. 
It's their only out. Their only out is Biden, break, break out that executive order pen and make a real change with it. Not some minor executive orders that are tweaks around the edges. Break out that executive order pen and eliminate student loan debt. Eliminate it. Legalize marijuana, which you could do through executive order. Just take, take marijuana off the Schedule One substances list. If you want to be meek about it, move it down to two or three, but in reality you just take it off of the list and boom, you effectively have legalized marijuana in the country. There's a bunch of stuff he can do through executive order. He can lower prescription drug prices. He can expand health care during the COVID pandemic. To not do it is basically shooting yourself in the face if you're Biden, and if you're the Democrat. So AOC notices that. And apparently her and a bunch of progressive caucus types are calling on Biden to do the executive orders. But I will say this. It's not enough just to call on him to do it. You know, I would meet with the president and have a a band of a dozen badasses who are willing to take hostages and steal the Tea Party tactic. And so if a left caucus goes to Biden and says, listen, man, We'll block everything you're going to do from now for the rest of your time in office. Years. We don't care. We're going to block that unless and until you start signing real executive orders. Free every nonviolent drug offender. Whatever. Make a list of 20 things. And there are 20 things he could do through executive order. Do it. And then the ball's in his court. And now he can go and whine and cry to the media. Um, and maybe the media would come after the left caucus in a situation like that. But my guess is He doesn't want another problem on his plate, man. He doesn't want another problem on his plate. And if he has a mutiny among his own ranks, he's going to get his ass in line. Now, maybe you give him a list of 15 or 20 different executive orders and say, we're demanding all these. Maybe he doesn't sign all those. But that's when you cut a deal. And that's when Biden says, look, I'll do these eight executive orders. And those eight executive orders not only are good for the country, but then are also good for the electoral chances of Democrats who are absolutely getting draxed right now in the polls. Democrats need to win by, like, five to seven points nationally in order to hold on to their seats in Congress, they're down two points. I mean, it is going to be an absolute bloodbath, man. And so she's actually trying to help, even though she's, you know, phrasing it like, look, I'm against you and you should do it. She's like, "This this is going to help you. You should do it. You should do it. But again, the, the criticism I have of her is that, the lack of solidarity among the left caucus and the lack of willing to really buck the party establishment leads them to just, it's all talk. Like, hey, we think you should do the executive orders. Okay, and then what? You can't, you're not just going to, don't just give him advice. He's not going to listen to it unless you make him listen to it. And the way you make him listen to it is I'll tank everything unless you do it. How about that? And I got 12 of us. That's enough of us to block anything you want. You won't be able to name a fucking bridge by the time I'm done with you. So break out that pen and do it. That's how you got to play politics. That's how you have to do it. And they're not doing it. So on the one hand, you know, I give her credit for acknowledging the reality that you need to bring about real change in order to win. That's obvious. And she's one of few people who say it. But to not go further and enforce that change. Now, look, is there hope? There's some hope because fact of the matter is it was AOC. It was Jamal Bowman. I think it was Ilhan Omar and some others. Um, it was not Rokana. Rokana was wrong on this one, who said, no, we're sticking to the original deal. Because remember, the Build Back Better deal was. And Build Back Better had a lot, the original Build Back Better had a lot of fantastic provisions at elder care, universal pre-K, lower prescription drug prices, um, extended child tax credit, sex of $300, $400. Uh, 
uh, for, for people who desperately need it. Um, Ro Khanna went back on the original deal and said, I will vote for the traditional infrastructure bill without it being attached to Build Back Better. It was just a handful, what they say in Article 6 or 7 Democrats, who stuck by the original deal, who were like, no, I'm not voting for your shitty traditional infrastructure bill with a bunch of corporate giveaways. It's a half-assed, watered-down bill. It's like $1 trillion or something like that when we need like 5 or $6 trillion for infrastructure. Because you guys said, we are going to put it together with Build Back Better to ensure that Build Back Better can pass. That was the deal. That was the deal with Manchin, with Cinema, with all the conservative corporate Democrats, the right-wing Democrats. That was the deal. You guys are now violating the deal, so no, you do not have our votes. But unfortunately, there wasn't enough of them to actually win on that front. And Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna and the Democrats, who were dead wrong and got made a fool of, have not come to terms with that, which tells you what? They're going to get rolled again. In every negotiation going forward, they're going to get rolled again, because not only did they lose, they didn't lose and then look in the mirror and say, wow, I fucked that up. They lost and then acted like they didn't do anything wrong. But if the goal was build back better, that's the bill we really wanted and it didn't get through, well, you're a failure. So credit to her on that front. And she does deserve credit on that front. Her and the the six or seven who voted the right way because they stuck by the original deal. But the problem is, again, if you use that same tactic going forward, you need to have more solidarity. So you need like 12, 15 or whatever it is of people in a left caucus, a true left caucus, not the bullshit fake progressive caucus, which is a lot of them are posers, um, in order to really force your will and shift the Overton window. So she's right that he needs to sign the executive orders. The other thing that can and should be done is, and this isn't as good as the executive orders, that's really the, the silver bullet to try to give the Democrats a fighting chance. But the other thing that could be done is, so take the individual provisions of Build Back Better that are popular enough, right, that even Manchin and Cinema have said, in theory, yeah, I'm, I'm with that. So one of them would be lower prescription drug prices. Another one would be, I think, universal pre-K, although Manchin may have flipped on that now, but at a time he was for it. Um, and propose the bills individually. Propose them individually. I mean, there's other things you could do too, because that would at least you know where the dividing lines are. You know who's on the right side of it. You know who's on the wrong side of it. That helps for the election. At least you're fighting for something good if you go down that path. But the other thing is they have the ability to just increase their cracks at reconciliation. And so if you say, hey, I know we get three cracks at reconciliation right now or whatever it is, but now we're going to make it 20. Well, then you can do the single bills with single policies and do it through reconciliation. As opposed to, you know, in the, if you do reconciliation now with just one policy, it's not enough to put one thing in there because you only get a couple chances at it, so it's like a waste. But if you do it, if you give yourself more cracks at it and then you do single policies for reconciliation and get everybody on the record, you only need 51 votes to get something through. So maybe you can get lower prescription drug prices. Maybe you can get universal pre-K. Certainly, it'll put a hell of a lot of political pressure on the likes of Manchin and Cinema, because there's no way they could spin that vote to their constituents. It's one thing to do it if it's part of a giant package where you could point out one thing in the package you don't agree with and say, I'm against that, you have to drop it or I'm not voting for it. It's a totally separate thing if you just have a vote on universal pre-K or lower prescription drug prices, and then you vote no on just that. That's another thing they could do. But again, there's no... Biden doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he's barely alive. He's barely alive. He's not married to, you know, social democratic change. And I, I don't even know, like, he might be so deep in his bubble that he genuinely thinks, like he said previously, 
You know, the polls, they go up, they go down, stuff happens, and then it is what it is. So he doesn't even necessarily think that the polls are directly related to what he does as president, which is just insane. But anyway, AOC's warning everybody, hey man, Biden, you better do executive orders or we are beyond screwed. And my guess is, not only will he not listen, but now it will become the conventional wisdom that she's dead wrong and the opposite is true. And that is what the media does, isn't it? They're like, the way for Biden to have better poll numbers is obviously to be even more centrist and to do nothing even more and harder. Whatever corporate media says, reliably, the exact opposite is the reality. Now let me give you Biden's colossal military budget. So uh, Biden released his budget, and I want to show you the colossal, gargantuan, gigantic military portion. So take a look at this. So Jeff Stein says, the smaller tweet says, White House seeking $813 billion defense budget as part of broader budget request. In case you want to know which reporters actually were the first to report by his military ask, it was Bloomberg last week. Then he says, another way of putting this is that the White House wants to spend more than $8 trillion, $8 trillion over 10 years on the defense budget. God damn, $8 trillion. Let me give you more. This is in CNN. They say the following. Uh, President Joe Biden's proposed fiscal year 2023 Pentagon budget includes $813 billion in spending for national defense, a 4% increase of $31 billion from the spending package signed into law earlier this month. The Biden administration's defense budget remains focused on China as the primary strategic challenge, with an emphasis on strengthening European security in light of the threat posed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Quote, if you look across the board at their capability, their economy, China remains our most challenging strategic threat. That's what the strategy says. That's what the budget says, the senior defense official told reporters ahead of the budget release. The Biden administration's proposal includes $773 billion in funding, specifically for the Pentagon in the coming year. Congress, which will ultimately set spending levels for the federal government, is likely to boost that figure higher, just as it did in the fiscal year 2022 spending package. That's insane. Republicans quickly responded to the Pentagon's budget rollout by arguing it wasn't enough for the U.S. military in the face of Russia's attack on Ukraine and China's military investments. Liberal Democrats, however, criticized the Biden administration for ramping up the defense budget at all. While the 2023 budget proposal was crafted before Russia invaded Ukraine last month, the Biden administration's defense budget recognizes the acute threat posed by Russia. Defense Department budget document says, Russia is pursuing a political, economic, and military strategy that seeks to fracture NATO, the Pentagon said. The defense budget includes $6.9 billion in funding for European deterrence initiative intended to counter Russian aggression and support Ukraine, funding that the White House touted in a fact sheet rolling out the entire federal budget proposal Monday. So, some more information about this. Um, There's, let me get to my notes. So, a lot of the budget is for modernizing the military. That's what a lot of it's for. They also have a lot of money in there for research and development. They have nuclear updates in there, which is something that Trump got the ball rolling on, and now Biden is continuing down that path. And then we also have more money for the Space Force. The Space Force, which, of course, was mocked by, uh, across the board by virtually anybody, even roughly in the Democratic camp, when Trump rolled it out, and now Biden is totally uh, on board and, and into it. And so you have a big increase here now. One of the arguments from the Republicans is like, well, the, with inflation, this isn't even really an increase. But that's not true. It actually is an increase even with inflation. 
So it's not like you're just making up for inflation and, and that's it. No, you're still, you're still raising the price even when accounting for inflation, still raising the budget even when accounting for inflation. So what they're saying is not true. So the Republican psychopaths are like, we, uh, this isn't even nearly enough, bro. Again, look at the price tag on it. Now, every time we talked about Build Back Better, which was actual social spending for regular people, people melted down over the price tag. And the media would only talk about how much it cost over a 10-year period, which is why you always said $3.5 trillion, $3.5 trillion, $3.5 trillion. Okay, but why do we never talk about it for the military that way? Notice, see, these are like the, the dirty little tricks used by the media. And I'm not saying it's on purpose. I'm not saying it's nefarious. It's just part of the culture. It's part of the conventional wisdom there. So the, you try to spin the military budget as more reasonable than it is. And you try to spin the Build Back Better proposal as uh, the Build Back Better proposal, they, th- they try to make it sound like it's way too expensive and it's super nefarious, whereas they say with the military budget, it's less nefarious. Because you say, oh, it's, what do you mean? It's only like $800 billion. Yeah, but it's $800 billion every year over a 10-year period. Whereas for Build Back Better, it's $3.5 trillion over a decade. So if we use the same criteria, the same standard, it's $8 trillion for the military. $8 trillion. Now, by the way, if you really stop and think about it, it is kind of hilarious, isn't it? Because if there's any sort of hot war with Russia, it doesn't matter if you spend $800 uh, billion, or excuse me, $8 trillion on the, mil- on the military or $800 billion on the military or like $8 on the military or $0.08 cents on the military because those nukes are going to be in the air and it's a wrap on all of us. So it doesn't really matter. All the small arms in the world, all the tanks, all the airplanes, they don't mean Dickie McGee's axe if we actually get into a hot war with Russia. So I find that massively ironic, too, and that's not a point that people often make. It's like, what is even the point of spending all this? What's even the point of it? And the answer is, look, it's, it's a profitable business. This is what the military-industrial complex is. You have jobs tied to this industry in all 50 states. So, and a lot of these companies, Raytheon, Boeing, Halliburton, um, Honeywell, these, these companies give campaign contributions to politicians and politicians get in there and as I scratch you, you're back, you scratch mine and then they, you know, give them these contracts to build a shitload of tanks that we don't need and a shitload of airplanes that we don't need and our welfare in this country is warfare. Like this is, this is a gigantic industry in the United States of America. And again, nobody bats an eyelash, nobody's going to say a goddamn thing about cost and that's what drives me crazy. That's what drives me crazy. All you heard about was cost for Build Back Better. Now, what's the difference? The difference is Build Back Better was significantly cheaper, less than half as expensive as the military budget over a decade, and Build Back Better actually had good things for people. It had elder care. It had universal pre-K. It had free college. It had lower prescription drug prices. It had uh, the extended child tax credit. It had all these things that actually help people, and all you heard was, oh, my God, we can't afford it. Oh, my God, it's so expensive. Oh, my God, what about the deficit? Um, I don't want to create an entitlement society, as uh, Joe Manchin famously said. But for making weapons of death, was like, uh, guys, this is a moral necessity. I don't, nobody's talking about the price tag. Is why would you? We need this. Well, why is health care not a moral necessity for everybody? When we have 45,000 deaths every year because people don't have it. 30 million uninsured. Why is that not a moral necessity? I mean, it's just the priorities are so warped. The media is so terrible about talking about it. Now, just to put this in perspective for everybody, because, God, this is so important. So, again, we're talking 
$8 trillion over 10 years. Trillion dollars over 10 years. How much would it cost per year to end homelessness, for example? Well, that number is anywhere from 20 to $40 billion. That's all it would take to end homelessness. 20 to $40 billion. Um, how about free college? Anywhere from 50 to $100 billion for free college. How about um, universal pre-K? About $30 billion. We're told we can't do those things. That's pie in the sky. That's lefty nonsense. But, you know, we could just dump $8 trillion down a black hole of endless militarism and, yay, everybody's happy. Democratic president. Democratic president. Massive increase in the budget. And they're going to increase it even more. It's truly astonishing. And then everybody's going to be too big of a cuck to vote against it because they don't want ads running against them saying they're soft on Russia, soft on terrorism or whatever. So they'll all buckle and vote for it. Most of them will. Enough to pass it. That's for damn sure. What a broken system, man. What a broken system. Uh, Everybody go back and watch that Dwight Eisenhower speech. And it should give you chills for how prescient it is talking about the military industrial complex. That speech needs to be, we need to strap down all of uh, Congress and force them to watch it until they feel immense shame because they deserve it. All right, next. Buckle up, everybody. Buckle up. 2024 is coming like a freight train, and this is this is a, a poll that should shock you out of complacency. So take a look. This is reported in The Hill. Former President Trump is leading President Biden in a hypothetical 2024 matchup, according to a new Harvard Caps-Harris poll survey released exclusively to The Hill on Monday. If the 2024 presidential election were held right now, the poll finds Trump getting 47% compared to 41% for Biden. 12% of voters are undecided. Vice President Harris performs even worse in a hypothetical matchup with Trump. 49% said they would choose Trump, while 38% said they would support Harris. That is a blowout of blowouts. The poll, while very early, portends trouble for Democrats, In their 2024 effort to maintain control of the White House after taking it back less than two years ago, Trump has repeatedly hinted that he's considering another bid for the presidency and remains deeply popular among the GOP's conservative base. Even if Trump and Biden choose not to run in 2024, Democrats may face some challenges. The Harvard Caps poll survey found Harris leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, current favorite for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, by a scant two-point margin. In that scenario, Harris takes 40% support to DeSantis' 38% support. Now, as his name recognition rises, that's going to shift. So I think she would still ultimately be down to him as well. That's yet to be seen, but that's what I think would happen. Um, Guys, guys, a six-point win for Trump against Biden and an 11-point win against Kamala Harris? Give it up. Give it up for the Democrats, ladies and gentlemen. For real. Give it up for the Democrats. Really brilliant stuff, guys. Just chef's kiss. What was the main argument we heard back in 2020, 2019 and 2020? You can't go with the left. You can't go with Bernie Sanders. 
because he emboldens the right because he's unelectable. So Trump would win in a situation like that. You can't do it. You can't do it. Now, at the time, we had a global pandemic where people were dying left and right. And Biden eked out a victory. He eked it out. Trump overperformed the polls yet again even more than in 2016. So, look, I don't know. We don't have a time machine. But what I do know is the arguments that were used against Bernie Sanders unfairly are actually fair to use against Biden and Harris. Guys, this is really dangerous. We're really rolling the dice with the future because you're putting a weaker candidate up against Donald Trump. Well, how's that looking for you now? How's that looking? 11-point win over Kamala Harris right now in the polling? Six-point win over Biden in the polling? Meanwhile, Trump is banned on Twitter. He goes on a podcast and gets banned immediately. He cannot shut the fuck up about rigged election, rigged election, rigged election. We got to stop the steal. He can't stop talking. There's a story coming out every day about the sketchy shit that went on behind the scenes. Homeboy was using burner phones. There's a seven-hour gap in the phone call records on January 6th. He was in direct contact with people like Steve Bannon. He was super involved in this notion. Maybe we will do a coup. Hooray! That guy, that guy is beating you by 11 points and 6 points, respectively. I couldn't be this big of a failure if I tried. You couldn't be this big of a failure if you tried. And their theory of governing is despised because they're not doing anything. They're not doing... What was the last best thing you did? I don't know. Uh, the $1,200 checks, which also, by the way, he said was going to be 2000 so he lied about that, but at least people got 1200 That's when his approval rating was over 50%. People were like, oh, look, material improvement to my life. Well, thank you, Mr. President. It, politics is not fucking rocket science. You did that, and you were liked. When you do nothing, and you sit on your ass, people don't like it. Now, look, we could have a detailed conversation about how he's handling the war in Ukraine, and, and do I think he's handling it better than Trump would be? Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. I'd be afraid Trump would have already pushed the red button or you know, gotten, gotten us into a hot war with Russia. So I think, you do, but that's, you can't just totally forego any domestic agenda because that's happening over there. People are struggling. People are struggling. So, I mean, this is, and it's, oh, it's so fixable. Oh, it's so fixable. And they just, the chance of them actually doing the stuff that would fix this and make them more competitive, what is it, 1% if I'm being kind? one percent all joe biden would have to do he could do it today he could get like a five bump in five point bump in the polls today if he just legalized marijuana through executive order and abolished student loan debt you know lower prescription drug prices there's a david dane of the american prospect has a phenomenal uh article where it's not really an article it's like he tracks this on a regular basis of all the executive orders biden could do that he has the ability, it's illegal for him to do this, just through executive order. And Biden's not doing any of the big ones. He's not doing any of the real ones. He's not doing anything that would give him a massive bump in the polls. And as a, this is the result. 
I mean, a guy who's banned on a thousand different platforms and keeps bringing up a topic which polls show Americans want him to shut up about. And that guy is still draxing you. He is draxing them scloused. It's, embar- it's embarrassing, man. It, how, how can you be this bad at governing? How can you be this bad? It, it's astonishing. Beating Trump should be the easiest thing in the world. The guy is a joke. The guy is a clown. The guy is a liar. The guy is a con man. The guy is a fraud. The guy governed like a typical establishment Republican. And now people are pining for those days back over what we have now? Because you know what? Look, keep it real. A lot of the issue with the Democrats is the false promises, and then they don't come to fruition. It's like oftentimes with the Republicans, they don't even promise shit, and then they don't deliver. I was like, well, man, at least, at least they were on it. <laughs> Whereas with the Democrats, it's like, we're going to do Build Back Better. We're going to get universal pre-K. We're going to get elder care. We're going to lower the cost of prescription drugs. We're going we're gonna to do extended child tax credit. The, okay, they even let the extended unemployment expire. They even said, uh, I think they have a date now for when student loan payments need to restart. I mean, if he doesn't reverse course, oh, Jesus Christ, it's going to be such a fucking... What else is there to say, man? It is... uh, It's special. That's the kind word I'll use. It is special to see how terrible they are. You would think that on some level it would cause reflection, right? You look in the mirror and be like, what am I doing wrong? But never. It never does it. And if anything... You know what happens? See, because that's the thing. They view it as like, it's like a non-falsifiable claim, right? So they say, oh, well, maybe the reason we're doing so poorly is because we were too ambitious and because we went too far left. So it's possible they take this and go even worse. They go even further right, even further pro-corporate, even less ambitious. Because they could say, what they could say is, the real problem was we ever proposed anything that had universal pre-K in it and, you know, elder care and extended child tax credit. Like, all of the things that we were ambitious about, the problem was that we were ambitious in the first place. We should have never been ambitious. Because, you know, um, maybe Americans don't even want those things, which we know they want, according to the polling. So they could say, we've been too left-wing. And no doubt that is the conventional wisdom. Biden has been dragged too far left by, like, Ilhan Omar and AOC. Uh, so they might take this information and get even worse, which is just, I mean, imagine have, it's like their brains don't function. They're just incapable of interpreting the world in a reasonable way. They have those West, West Wing brain worms, you know? And look, if all you hear 24-7 is the idea you're too extreme, you're too far left, you're, you know, you're listening to the base too much. If that's all you hear and you're Joe Biden, I don't think he can withstand that and say you're fucking wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. On some issues, he was able to do it, like with pulling out of Afghanistan, the entire media told him he shouldn't fucking do it. His staffers probably said the same thing. He's like, no, I'm doing it. So every now and then maybe he does it, but I mean, I don't foresee this changing. For the love of God, do some executive orders, do something positive for the American people and then brag about it and attack the Republicans for not getting on board with it. Uh, and, you know, that's your only chance, but it's looking like it's going to be even worse than the Tea Party wave. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Worse than the Tea Party wave. And now, what's going on in the Republican Party? Trump is trying to purge everybody 
who wasn't in favor of overthrowing the election. If you want a whole group of like Lauren Boeberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens and people like that, and, and they're going to you know, control Congress, oh, oh, that's it. I'm at a loss for words. All right, next. So Kim Kardashian uh, got in trouble recently because she made a comment that uh, you need to get your ass up and work, and people don't even want to work hard these days. Uh, So holy hell rained down on her because everybody was like, you privileged elitist prick. Like people are struggling and barely getting by and busting their ass in the process and a miserable situation and like 80% of people live paycheck to paycheck and during the height of the pandemic when everybody was sitting in their house you she rented a private island and was posting about it so people were fed up they were like what are you doing what are you doing what are you and it's a shame because she helped get Alice Johnson out of prison and uh, you know she's also like being harassed by Kanye West which I wouldn't wish on anybody but yeah I mean she shoved her foot directly in her mouth so now after hearing the backlash she does another uh, appearance and she responds to that backlash let's take a look this morning, Kim Kardashian responding to the backlash from her comments to Variety earlier this month. Save the best advice for women in business. Get your doesn't work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. You have to, so true. You have to surround yourself with people that want to work. Many weighing in online, calling out the privilege they say may have helped the scam's founder success. The statement even mentioned last night at the Oscars. And this is from... Uh, a quote from Kim Kardashian, mm-hmm. work harder. That's right. That's what we need you to do. In a new sit-down, Kardashian addresses the controversy. When you made a recent statement yeah. about women in business, and it got a lot of backlash. It did, And yeah. saying, you know, go to work, get up and go to work. What did you mean by that, and what do you want to say now about it? Well, that statement that I said was without questions and conversation around it, and it, it became a soundbite really with no context. And that soundbite, I came off of the notion and the question right before, which was, after 20 years of being in the business, you're famous for being famous. And I, my whole tone and attitude changed with the previous question that went into that question about what advice would you give to women? And the advice that I would give is just that having a social media presence and being on a reality show does not mean overnight success. And you have to really work hard to get there, even if it might seem like it's easy and that you can build a really successful business off of social media. And you can if you put in a lot of hard work. And it wasn't a blanket statement towards women or to feel like, I don't respect the work or think that they don't work hard. I know that they do. That was taken out of context, but I'm, I'm really sorry if it was received that way. It wasn't, it wasn't taken out of context. It wasn't. I mean, yes, they didn't show the question before it. Hey, you're famous for being famous. What advice do you have for women? Um, but it still was a dumb thing to say. Listen, I, I have no doubt, and maybe this is controversial, maybe you guys wouldn't agree. I have no doubt that on the business side of the shit she actually does. So, you know, she has a bunch of lines of different shit and sells a bunch of products and whatnot. And I'm sure that she's probably involved in the specifics and the details of what she wants to sell and 
where she wants to sell it and maybe gets involved in, you know, the numbers in terms of sales and whatnot. So on the business side of what she does, I'm sure that there's real shit that she's doing. So she feels like she works really hard. But the part about the reality show, don't, don't, don't tell me that that's hard work. Don't tell me that that's hard work. Especially the format of the show that they did where they just have the camera on just following them living their daily lives. That's what that, that was keeping up with the Kardashians. Don't lie to people and say that's hard work. That's not hard work. And there is an element of she's famous because she's famous. Like, yeah, you had a lot of connections back in the day, whether it was to Paris Hilton, and then, you know, she had that sex tape that blew up with Ray J. And um, after that, you know, there was an, an interest in her, and she ended up having her keep it up with the Kardashian show. And posting on social media and doing the reality show, that is not hard work. You know what hard work is? Being in a coal mine. You know what hard work is? Being an accountant. That's hard work. That, that's, it's grueling. You're trudging through the day, trying to get by. Even if you like numbers, at some point, when you're on hour three and a half of going through numbers, doing somebody's taxes, you're going to be like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. I just want a burrito, dog. But, like, that's the thing. That's, just admit that part. Just admit that part. Yeah, you know what? The reality show, that's not the hardest work in the world. We've got to put a camera on and just live our lives. Okay. Posting on social media? That's not, that's not really hard work. Now, by the way, I'm, I, I don't know if Kim does this. I assume she does. I know other members of the Kardashian family do do it. But, like, those sponsored posts, I find those so gross, man. Like, she probably gets paid over $100,000, maybe a million dollars for a post she does, pushing a certain product. Uh, and, I don't know, I just find something about that is unsettling to me. You know, it's just like, so how do we know what your real opinion is and what you're just paid to fucking put out there? It just strikes me as gross, but... The, the other problem with this, and this is why she would have been so much better off if she just came out and said, you know what, I was wrong, and here's why I'm wrong, and then explain it. Because, again, the fact of the matter is she said, get your ass up and work, and then she said, it seems like nobody wants to work these days. The reason why that frustrates people so much is because, in all seriousness, most people work way harder than Kim Kardashian, and they don't get a fraction of the money that she gets. I think that's why everybody was super annoyed by it. Because, and I don't remember the exact number, but there was a poll Crystal and I talked about a while ago on Crystal Kyle and Friends. It's something like only 18% of people feel, quote, engaged at work. So over 80% of people don't really love their job, and they're doing it because they have to do it to pay the bills and look after the kids, look, look after their family, survive. And so when you have a situation where, like, 80% of people are busting their ass not really getting rewarded for it in the way that they feel they should be rewarded for it. Um, and they're not crazy happy about their situation, but they're still doing what they got to do to get by. And then you got this person who has everything, who's saying, like, you don't work hard, but I do. Ooh, man. Man. And, by the way, I'll take it a step further. Even if people genuinely felt, even if that was true, like, ah, people don't want to work these days. It's like, well, gee, I wonder why, if that were the case, why is that? Well, Maybe because, again, most people feel like they're underpaid, undervalued, and they're not doing a job that they love. Now, you could say, well, hey, whose fault is that? But in all seriousness, the way the system works, it's like most of the shit people have to do is probably not shit that they're excited about. You know, it's not really a system that benefits creativity and allows everybody to follow their dream and their passion. It'd be glorious if it was, but it's not really that. Only 18% of people feel like that's... uh, I'm doing what I love, and I'm engaged at work, you know? So even if people, even if she was right, and, like, 
everybody, nobody wants to work these days. It's like, well, let's examine why, and maybe the correct answer is not to just cast moral judgment. Maybe there are like, it's not an individual failing, it's like more a, a systemic problem. And my guess is, by the way, if, you, if people got paid more to do even the jobs that they're not crazy about, they would be much happier to go to work. Because it's like, hey, at least I'm fucking stacking some paper here, and then that allows me to have more leisure time, that allows me to get some more material goods that would increase my quality of life or whatever. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is, again, people do what they have to do to get by. And so they are working hard. And they're not really rewarded that well for it. And so for somebody who's just, I mean, is she a billionaire yet? I don't know. I know Kylie was, or at least for a little bit. I don't know if Kim is, but multi-hundred millionaire. It's like she, Kim is lying to herself in thinking this is purely a meritocracy that we live in. And the myth of meritocracy is one that's always gotten under my skin massively because it's such a self-serving belief for people who have, quote-unquote, made it to the top. I must be special. And it's like your market value is not the same as your human value. And a lot of phenomenal people don't make a lot of money in the market. And it's not a failing on their part. It's that the system is not geared towards rewarding certain kinds of people who might be phenomenal people but don't have the, the, you know, the ability on the marketplace to make colossal amounts of money. So it's just – it's annoying, man. It's annoying. She could – here's – some people call this an apology. That doesn't, I'm sorry if it came across that way, but it was taken out of context. That's not really an apology. But if she just came out and said, look, I was wrong to say that people do work hard, and they work hard, and they don't get paid nearly as much as they should get paid for it um, – and, yeah, perhaps the reality show is not the most amount of work. I do other things that are a lot of work, but the reality show isn't a lot of work. Posting is not a lot of work. If she said that, I think people would be like, okay, all right. But I don't know why it's so hard. Like, if I really feel like I do something wrong, I'm just like, hey, I was wrong about that. What is it with the, you know, people who are incapable of doing that? It's very strange to me because it's not like, they're try- it's like she's trying to protect her image, but in the process of trying to protect her image, she's actually digging her hole deeper and making it worse. The better way to, quote, unquote, protect your image is to just be honest and be like, yeah, I was wrong. My bad. <laughs> because people get stuff wrong. It happens. People, in my experience, people are ge- generally very forgiving. You're just like, hey, I was wrong. I was wrong. My bad. You're like, that's fine. Yeah, what are you going to do? Hey, you're me. Awesome. Great. So could have done that, Kim. Could have done, done that. But clearly she's not in that headspace. So there's a Nebraska senator, state senator, by the name of Bruce Bostelman, 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 uh, and he went viral because he railed against furries in schools. You're going to love this speech. And I'm a little shocked, I guess is what I would put it. It's called something called furries. If you don't know what furries are, it's where school children dress up as animals, cats or dogs, during the school day. They meow and they bark, and they interact with their school, with the teachers in that in this fashion. And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? I'm going to have a discussion with CEO Smith about this. This is something I think 
how can schools allow this to happen? I think it's very disruptive within the school system. I think it's very disruptive within the classes. I even heard from one person here recently said that a, that a, that a student identified as a cat and wanted a litter box. And the school didn't provide the litter box, so the student went ahead and defecated on the floor. Really? Really? School administrators, what is going on? Nebraska Board of Education, what is going on? State Board of Education, what is going on? If some kids can't wear American flag to walk through the school on their shirt, then you keep them out of school. And you kick them out of school, but it's okay if, if they wear a cat costume? And that's fine, and you have a litter box for them, and that's fine? I, needless to say, literally every point he made there was fake news. It was fake news. You know where he got it from? I'm not kidding about this. Facebook. Homeboy is trying to legislate based on Facebook memes. We need to shut down boomers until we can figure out what the hell's going on. I don't like, man. I saw a lot of it, even in the Obama years. You get some older person who's on Facebook. They see somebody post some meme or some story, or they get an email that says Obama's like a Kenyan Muslim communist. And they're just, boom, hook, line, and sinker, gone. And I don't know why. Are, are, they're, maybe they're from a generation that was just more, they believed more in hierarchy and order. And so if, and, and a trusted figure said something, it's just like, well, that's true because they said it. And so they see something on Facebook, it's, it, it's true because it says it right here. That, I honestly think that's the mindset. And look at where it leads you. This guy embarrassed himself nationally because this made news everywhere. And so, look, to his credit, he came out and apologized. And I'm sure he feels like a moron. You want to know why? Because it was moronic to believe that, dog. There, so there's an epidemic of kids going to school dressed like cats. And now they're putting litter boxes in the schools. And one of the teachers didn't. And so this cat pulled down their pants and shit on the floor in protest for not having a litter box. At no point in reading those stories. Did you go, huh, you know, maybe I should try to fact check this one. Just throw hook, line, and sinker. And by the way, there's a big, is confirmation bias the, the right term to use here? But it seems like a cautionary tale on that front. Like, this guy is already primed to believe the younger generation are insane, cancel culture-loving, overly woke people who are having identity crises. And so since he already was inclined to believe that, anything that would have fed that narrative, he was immediately all in on. You're a state senator. How many kids in Nebraska don't have enough to eat? How many people in Missouri don't have health care? How many wages for full-time workers are under the poverty line? How many uh, you know, various pieces of infrastructure desperately need updating? How many bridges are in disrepair, and you're up there talking about furries and an epidemic of cat children in schools, 
And again, I can't stress this enough. At no point, at no point was he like, huh, maybe I should look a little bit into this. Maybe I should be even like 1% skeptical. He gave a speech on the floor. He gave a speech on the floor. Talking about the cat kids shitting in school on the floor. I, you know, I'm not a fan of the Bill Maher line of like, well, the American public is just stupid. I'm Bill Maher. I'm not a big fan of that line. I think it's smug. I think it's elitist. I think that uh, generally speaking, people, while they might not know historical facts and they might be ignorant to, stuff, so, to a lot of information, at least in terms of their politics, people generally want what's good for themselves and their neighbor. So... I don't have the same view as Bill Maher Like, people are stupid, full stop. But when you watch this and you hear this guy talk, you think, well, Bill Maher, Bill Maher. If you got to this point and there was not a hint of doubt in your mind, because he's so confident as he says it, too. That's the other thing. It's one thing to be wrong. It's another thing to be really smug and arrogantly and over-the-top wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go way over the top now, too. Imagine for a second what he was saying, minus the shitting story. But imagine everything else was true, like there were a bunch of kids going to school dressed in cat costumes or whatever. I don't know about you guys. I, I've seen five-year-old kids, whatever. They like to dress up in costumes, like to wear a Batman outfit or a Batgirl outfit or Superman or a princess or whatever. Uh, would that be a national scandal? Would that be a scandal? Should that really be? Oh, my God, the children are dressing up. (laughs) Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Uh, I remember being younger when I thought, like, oh, you know, the adults generally figured stuff out, so we're good. Then you look at stuff like this, and you're like, figure stuff out. That we're, we're so far away from that, it's comical. There, there is no captain of the ship. There is no real authority figure. And, I mean, this clip is everything in proving that. All right, next. So there was a billionaire tax that was proposed by Biden as part of his budget. Now, he's uh, framing it as, well, we're doing this for deficit reduction. I think that's debatable whether or not, uh, you know, deficit reduction should be the focus. It's that neoliberal framing of, like, giving in to the conservatives. And by the way, when Republicans are in office, they never give a shit about the deficit. They never reduce it. They always increase it. So they spend like drunken sailors and then turn around when they're out of office and be like, Look at this, de- this deficit. Democrats, you should do something about that. And usually that's a way to get Democrats to embrace austerity, which in turn makes them less popular, which then gets Republicans back in power. But this is an instance of Biden's like, oh, okay, you want me to care about the deficit? Fine, well, let's raise tax on the rich. So at least he's coming at it from that perspective as opposed to let's embrace you know, much more austerity. He's not doing anything in terms of social spending and increasing it, but uh, at least raising tax on the wealthy is a better way if you're going to tackle the deficit to do that. So uh, he releases this new billionaire tax. Let me give you some of the information on it. So first, we'll go to the CNBC article here. 
President Joe Biden to propose new 20% minimum billionaire tax. The tax uh, billionaire minimum income tax would assess a 20% minimum tax rate on U.S. households with more than $100 million. Over half the revenue could come from those worth more than $1 billion. So they say President Joe Biden is expected to propose a new minimum tax that would largely target billionaires when he unveils his 2023 budget, according to a document obtained by CNBC called the Billionaire Minimum Tax. It would assess a 20% minimum tax rate on U.S. households worth more than $100 million. Over half the revenue would come from those worth more than $1 billion. Quote, this minimum tax would make sure that the wealthiest Americans no longer pay a tax rate lower than teachers and firefighters, the document said. Uh, The proposed levy is expected to reduce the deficit by about $360 billion in the next decade, according to the document. If a wealthy household is already paying 20% on their full income, they won't pay an additional tax under the proposal. If they pay less than 20%, they'll owe a top-up payment to meet the new minimum. As a result, this new minimum tax will eliminate the ability for the unrealized income of ultra-high net worth households to go untaxed for decades or generations, the document said. So Biden explained in his speech on this, as he was announcing this and other things, that apparently the average tax rate is 8% for billionaires. So to have the 20% minimum threshold makes it so that they're going to be paying a lot more in taxes. This sort of reminds me of what's called the alternative minimum tax, which it's a similar idea behind that. But this obviously is more targeted to billionaires and more uh, aggressive. So let's go ahead and take a look here at um, courts, because they break down what certain billionaires would pay. Let's go through some of these here. So Elon Musk, he has wealth of $256 billion. Uh, wealth in stocks of 200 and what is that, 50 or 60? I'm not, it's a little small. I'm, 250 billion. Estimated taxable gains, 250 billion. The tax owed by Elon under this system would be 50 billion. Then you have Jeff Bezos, 190 billion. Wealth in stocks, 174 billion. Estimated taxable gains, 174 billion. The tax owed is 30, 35 billion. Bill Gates, 133 billion. Wealth in stocks, 76 billion. Estimated taxable gains, 54 billion. He would pay 11 billion. Warren Buffett has wealth of $130 billion. He would pay $26 billion. And then let's skip down to the bottom there where you see Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, $84 billion. Um, he would pay $16 billion under this. Jim Walton has $65 billion. He would pay $7 billion under this. And then you see the bottom there. It says Biden's proposed tax would apply to just 0.01% of the wealthiest U.S. households and raise an estimated $361 billion in revenue by 2032. Okay, so now this is a good idea. You know, you could argue, hey, maybe it's not aggressive enough. Um, they should go further. There was some debate originally of, as, oh, is this, is he talking about the 20% minimum on income or is he talking about 20% minimum on like net worth or, or what is it? And uh, remember, the system that we have now, there was a lot of reporting on this after the Trump tax cut bill passed and I think it was 2017. Now you have billionaires effectively pay a lower tax rate than working class people. So not only do we not have, we don't really have a progressive tax system in the country. In many ways, we have a regressive tax system. So like for, for the middle class, you actually end up paying more than the ultra wealthy. And then, of course, they have all these loopholes and deductions, and they have an army of tax lawyers and experts who search for you know, legal ways or questionable ways to hide the money and dodge the taxes. We talked about the strategy Elon Musk used was it's, it's called buy, borrow, die. I believe that's what they call it. And the whole idea is you don't really take any money from your company. You borrow against your stock. And so since you're just borrowing money against your stock, you don't pay any taxes. 
and any bank would loan to him because he's Elon Musk and he's got a tremendous amount of money. Um, and then eventually when it's passed on, that's why buy, borrow, die, it, it doesn't get taxed nearly as much as if he were to actually pay his taxes. So there are plenty of billionaires, plenty of corporations that literally pay nothing in taxes. There was that big you know, ProPublica piece that came out a while ago, which explained the quote-unquote true tax rate of what billionaires are paying. And some pay zero, some pay 1%, some pay 5%. And again, compare that to working people and what they go through. And, you know, everybody, you're paying your taxes like a sucker, and these guys are um, getting away with not paying anything at all, or paying very, very little. And so this is a, an attempt to reverse that. Look, you guys know my take on this stuff. I would, I would use a all-the-above approach when it comes to this stuff. I want to raise corporate taxes. I want to raise the top marginal income tax rate. I want to do a wealth tax and tax net worth. And I don't think, as long as you're talking about, hey, you want to keep access to the U.S. market, okay, well, then you're going to have to pay these taxes. As long as you do that, there's not going to be any capital flight. And even if there is some capital flight, it'd be, it'd be negligible. You know, it would be enough where somebody else is going to come in and fill the gap because people want access to the U.S. market. And so it doesn't mean every kind of tax you could possibly uh, propose would be a good one, but it does mean a lot of them would be. And this is the way you tackle extreme income and wealth inequality. You know, if, if there are plenty of people out there who are not in favor of more radical solutions, like, you know, worker-owned co-ops or moving to some sort of socialist system or, you know, starting to blur the lines or get away from property rights completely. The, the way to address this within the confines of the current structure of our system is redistrib- redistributive policies. And so what you do is you tax the wealthy and you redistribute that to the population through, you know, free college and universal pre-K and paid vacation time by law and higher wages. And to me, at this point, when you look at the extreme income and wealth inequality and how much wealthier billionaires got during the pandemic, how everybody else got screwed, redistributive policies are the duh position. I mean, we covered a story from, it was um, the Rand Corporation did a, did a study that found effectively the top 1% or 0.01% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90% um, since like the 1970s. It, incredible. So if we just had the same pay disparity, the same ratio of like average uh, worker to wealthy person, right now, the bottom 90% would get $1,144 extra every month for the rest of their lives. If we just kept the same disparity we had in like the 1970s, isn't that crazy? And it's because, look, with the labor unions have been absolutely obliterated and we don't have many people in labor unions anymore. Thankfully now they're just starting to grow again and just starting to push back and go on the offense as opposed to playing defense. But, um, there really has been an onslaught and a war on labor unions for an extended period of time in this country. And of course you have corporations and billionaires who bought the government and rigged policy in their favor. And so you got our um, social programs have been obliterated. You know, the safety net programs have been obliterated. Unions were struggling. Tax policy benefits the wealthy. And so there is class war going on. It's waged by the 1% on the working people. And so this is an attempt to get back. Now I tell you all this stuff and give you the specifics of the policy to give you this piece of information now. Manchin has already shot it down. Here we go again. Here we go again. So listen, bottom line is, if you're not going to hold this punk ass accountable, if you're not going to do what needs to be done, which is tell him, look, we have your daughter caught dead to right on email talking about like price gouging people because she worked at a pharma company. Like you guys committed crimes and you talked about it. 
and you're not threatening to prosecute his daughter unless he plays ball now, then you're just, there's no hope for you. There's none. There's none. If you're not going to uh, threaten Manchin with a public pressure campaign, the likes of which nobody has ever seen before, then you're done. And, of course, Biden's not going to do that. He doesn't have that in him. So every now and then he'll propose these decent policies and get them slapped down and then say, oh, I'm sorry, can I please have my stapler now? I'll go back and sit in the corner and do nothing and get landslided by idiot Republicans in the next election. <laughs> so anyway, that's the new billionaire's tax uh, explained. And um, looks like it's not going anywhere, which, yet again, is further evidence of just how broken our government is and how weak and pathetic the Democrats are. Okay, next. So, uh, oh, wait, hold on, let me see. Oh, I almost skipped the story, my bad, guys. Here, let me do the Ted Cruz one. So Ted Cruz um, was caught in a scandal here. Now, there's a lot of information coming out because the January 6th investigation about what was going on behind the scenes. And, man, look, it's bad. Like, the stuff that they were talking about is it's mental. It's, it's, it's out of this world. We know that there were memos floating around of, like, here's how we overthrow the election. Here are the talking points we use. Here's how you declare martial law to get it done. They were openly discussing all of this stuff. Yet people who are proven fabulists and liars who were in the room with Trump making a case like Sidney Powell you know, Michael Flynn. If it wasn't for certain people on Trump's staff who weren't, absolute, who weren't correct, then the insane people would have won. And Lord only knows what would have happened. But, so now we know Trump was using burner phones, and there was like a seven-hour gap uh, on calls during the, what was happening on January 6th. So, of course, the speculation is he was using his burner phones. Who was he talking to? What were they saying? So there's a lot of like, whoa, this, this was even crazier than people realized. He wasn't like a passive observer. He was like a participant. And I mean, I guess that shouldn't be too surprising because they haven't given a speech before they show him the Capitol. He's like, let's go to the Capitol. And I hope Mike does the right thing and basically saying he wants Mike Pence to overthrow the results of the election. So Ted Cruz was also in constant contact with Trump. And um, here's what we learned about just how deep he was in all of this. Take a look. Mediaite says, the Washington Post reports that in December of 2020, Trump called Cruz to ask if he would help him by arguing in favor of a lawsuit filed to the Supreme Court with the aim of overturning the election. Quote, would, would you be willing to argue the case? Trump asked. Cruz answered that if, if the court guaranteed a hearing, quote, I'd be happy to make the argument. The report says the January 6th committee is looking into Cruz's conduct before the storming of the U.S. Capitol, which occurred the same day he objected to the certification of Joe Biden's election victory. The committee is said to be particularly interested in Cruz's friendship with John Eastman, the former Trump lawyer who proposed the plan for how former Vice President Mike Pence could have supposedly overturned the 2020 election. While Eastman was coming up with his plan to have Pence block the certification of the Electoral College results, the Post says Cruz was working on his own plan that ran parallel with the goal of nullifying the election. As Eastman outlined a scenario in which Vice President Mike Pence could deny certifying Biden's election, Cruz crafted a complementary plan in the Senate. He proposed objecting to the results in six swing states and delaying accepting the Electoral College results on January 6th in favor of a 10-day audit, thus potentially enabling GOP state legislatures to overturn the results. Ten other senators 
backed his proposal, which Cruz continued to advocate on the day rioters attacked the Capitol. That's amazing. That's amazing. So Cruz said to Trump, I'd be happy to argue your case at the Supreme Court. So, and what he's talking about is Trump's like, oh, it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. Uh, you know, we got to stop the steal. And Cruz is like, bet, I'm for it. Like, I will make this argument in front of the Supreme Court. That's amazing to me. Because stop and think about it, man. There were over 60 court cases already. And the Trump team lost almost every single one of them. And even the tiny wins they had here and there had no, it wouldn't change the outcome at all in any of the states. We had the Arizona audit where Biden won by more votes than anybody uh, thought he won by on election day. They did the audit and Biden won by more. You have even, there are other Republican judges who laughed Trump out of court with his claims here. There are even Trump appointed judges who laughed him out of court. And here's Ted Cruz, little cuck boy, genuflecting and saying, I'll argue your thing in front of the Supreme Court. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And look, the takeaway is the most obvious thing in the world, which is he is the ultimate wave rider. Ted Cruz is. And so he knows Trump was still the dominant figure in the Republican Party, and he wants eventually to be president himself. And so he was willing to do anything. He would, he's going to the mat for Trump here. He's ride or die for Trump here. And the thing that is most stunning to me is how shameless it is because Ted Cruz knows the election wasn't stolen. Ted Cruz knows that. Ted Cruz knows that Biden won the election fair and square. He understands that. But he's doing it anyway. Think of, think of the kind of person who would do that. Think of it for real. Totally spineless, totally shameless, complete partisan hack, a complete and utter careerist. And look, if he was involved this much, I'd like to know how else he was involved. To draft a plan, hey, here's how we're going to do it, here's how we're going to try to overturn it. And look, I've got to keep it real. I don't, you can't walk away from this and say they have a principled belief in democracy. You can't do it. You can't do it. Because they clearly don't believe in democracy. They clearly, even knowing he's wrong, Ted Cruz still would have argued to put Trump back in the White House and overturn the results of an election. So any of the moral, fake moral grandstanding from Cruz on any other issue, just understand, because he pretends to drape himself in Americana and, like, I love the flag, and, you know, here's an eagle, and I'm Ted Cruz. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. You don't even believe in the basics of our system. You would be totally cool with an authoritarian dictator as long as the authoritarian dictator uh, was on your team and had a somewhat similar ideology to you, and you thought you can get ahead by hitching your wagon to that dictator. So shameless hack, complete hack. I know all you guys know that, but this is even above and beyond what I thought, man, for real. So here's Ted Cruz doing Ted Cruz shit, and um, I can't say enough negative things about him. I mean, he is the worst of the worst. All right, next. So President Trump um, was golfing the other day. Now, he was golfing with a bunch of pros. He was golfing with Ernie Els, who's a major champion, um, Gene Sowers, who's like a senior or champions tour professional, and then one other. I'm blanking on who the other one was. Uh, now, he made a hole-in-one. He made a hole-in-one playing in Florida with these guys. And he was so excited by it 
that he did a press release. So let's go ahead and take a look and read through it here. Here's what he said. A statement by Donald J. Trump, voice of the President of the United States of America. Many people are asking, so I'll give it to you now. It is 100% true. While playing with the legendary golfer Ernie Els, winner of four majors and approximately 72 other tournaments throughout the world, Gene Sowers, winner of the Senior U.S. Open, Ken Duke and Mike Goods, that's who the other ones are, both excellent tour players, I made a hole-in-one. It took place at Trump International Golf Club in West Palm Beach, Florida, on the seventh hole, which was playing 181 yards into a slight wind. I hit a five iron, which sailed magnificently into a rather strong wind. <laughs> Instant contradiction on the wind speed. I love that. It was a slight wind, and then it's a strong wind. I love that. With approximately five feet of cut, whereupon it bounced twice and then went clank into the hole. These great tour players noticed it before. I did. Uh, these great tour players noticed it before I did because their eyes are slightly better. But on that one hole only, their swings weren't. Anyway, there's a lot of chatter about it. Quite exciting. And people everywhere seem to be asking for the facts. Playing with that group of wonderful, talented players was a lot of fun. The match with Ernie and me, with no strokes, against, Mike, Gene, against Gene, Mike, and Ken. I won't tell you who won, because I'm a very modest individual. And you will then say I was bragging. And I don't like people who brag. <laughs> now that last line does strike me as a touch of self-awareness from Trump where he's making a joke. Um, but my favorite part is the wind. Hit into a slight wind, which was a very strong wind. <laughs> Unless he thinks the word slight also means strong. I mean, I guess that's possible. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, Donald Trump making a hole-in-one. Look, part of me doing this segment is to say it's sour grapes because I still haven't had a hole-in-one, dog. And I'm definitely a much better golfer than Donald Trump. There's no doubt about it. I've been playing, like, my whole life, and I'm a single-digit handicap. I've still never made a hole-in-one. And so uh, I'm super jealous. What did this guy do that he deserves a hole-in-one? I still don't have a hole-in-one. Um, the other thing is, now this is a little too in the weeds for any of you guys to give a fuck, unless it's like the 1% of my audience that knows golf and likes golf. But hitting a five iron in, into the wind 181 yards. Don't know if he's being truthful on that front, dog. Because if it's playing like 190 or 195, Trump hitting a five iron, 195, I mean, that's like, that's hitting it as long as like a, one of the shorter tour players. Does he have that kind of swing speed? I mean, he's, how old is he, 74 or some shit like that? He's kind of big. Maybe he does. I don't know. Maybe he does. But that, even that seems like he might be stretching it a touch, like the homeboy really hit like a three iron or some shit, and he's saying he hit a five iron. I don't know. I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter, but I find this is classic Trump, man. This is classic Trump right here, doing a press release release as former president of the U.S. about your hole-in-one. And, and, allow me to say, um, the poll just came out where he's beating Kamala by 11 points in a 2024 matchup and beating Biden by six points. He can't shut up about rigged election, which he's wrong about. He can't shut up about that. Uh, and he's still so self-obsessed that he releases this, thinking people care. Uh, and he's, he's winning. Good job, Democrats, for being that uh, for being that pathetic that this guy somehow looks appealing. Amazing, but anyway, hilarious statement. Um, I enjoyed it, and he's a colossal goofball. All right, final story, guys. 
So Tim Ryan, running for um, U.S. Senate, he's in Ohio, and uh, he released an ad, which is curious to say the least. Let's take a look. talking about manufacturing jobs and so that's why maybe this lands i don't know but on the other hand it's like why do you have to frame it in that way we can't be relying on communist china we need to fight back fight back fight back so there's like an unnecessary hostility to it where it it, you could have made the ad one word jobs or one word manufacturing or one or two words higher wages or two words, stop outsourcing. But he, he had to do it from the perspective of like, China, China bad, China really bad, China bad. So this is Democrats. I feel like this is Democrats immediately giving into right-wing framing. Now, by the way, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not in favor of outsourcing all the jobs to China. Permanent normal trade relations with China was horrendous. NAFTA was horrendous, although, of course, that's Canada and Mexico. Like, all the outsourcing deals were terrible, and they were really for corporate profits and screwed workers in this country. So I'm with you on that. But when you talk about it in the way that you're talking about it, there's, other, there's undertones, man, because it's not, just, it's not just the jobs thing with China. It's also they're doing the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, and they're expanding their sphere of influence, and they're clearly an ascendant power. And I don't want to feed some new, like, Cold War-ass rhetoric for your cheap political ad. It's just goofy. It's just an awkward way to do the ad. Now, look, ultimately, maybe I'll, you know, it'll prove that what um, my interpretation of it and my feelings on it are wrong, and maybe people will enjoy it in Ohio and will support it. But I don't like the hawkish undertones and angle. You could just do one word, jobs. We're going to bring back jobs. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bring back manufacturing. We're going to build new factories and new plants. We're going to hire, you know, tens of thousands of people, whatever. Like, that's an ad that I could totally get behind. And so one thing I have to say in the context of the story, though, is I do not support Tim Ryan. I support Morgan Harper. Morgan Harper is running for for U.S. Senate in Ohio, primary against Tim Ryan. For the love of God, get Morgan Harper through that primary because I think she has a much better shot, Um, and she's a much, much better candidate. So... Oh, Democrats try to frame something in a way that isn't ridiculous challenge. Don't think they're going to be able to win that one. Okay. All right, guys. I am done. I love y'all. I'll talk to y'all soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.